many of you, hopefully. Uh, go ahead and, and open your Bibles to John chapter 10. Uh, we are continuing uh, a series that uh, is reflecting some of the foundational truths uh, from the Reformation. Uh, Tuesday is election day, uh, and I hope that you know, you're planning to go and vote for whoever's going to become our next uh, state governor and uh, you know, more other leaders, either statewide or, or locally. Uh, election day is, uh, is sort of, you know, well, it's something that we're glad for. We're thankful to be electing uh, our representatives. But um, as Americans, we, we take a little bit something extra into the polls. We don't just take a, a, an attitude of thanksgiving or a heart of gratitude. Uh, we are also taking with us into those polls a little bit of a heart of entitlement, I think. I don't think that's a stretch. Uh, we sort of feel like this is not just a right that's been guaranteed to us or protected uh, by our government, but that it's more foundational than that. It's like inalienable. I should be able to elect uh, my, my, uh, my representatives, my governors and president and so on. Um, so regardless of your views on that, I want you to think about, is it appropriate, how much do we bring that same sense of entitlement and I feel, you know, this right, uh, to elect and choose who's going to rule over me into church, uh, especially into religion, into our view of God himself. We view uh, religion sort of as an election, and that God uh, chooses me, he casts a vote for me, Satan casts a vote against me, and that it's my sovereign you know, choice, my deciding vote that you know, ends up uh, tipping the scale one way or the other. Um, the Bible sort of gives us a different picture that we're going to see here in John chapter 10. Our focus today is on <clears throat> irresistible grace. It's what has been called. Uh, that title comes actually from a 400-year-old discussion, uh, and it really boils down to this question. Can the Holy Spirit's calling be resisted? Does that make sense? Can the Holy Spirit's calling be resisted? In one sense, Yes. And that's what everybody's doing. You know, everybody who's not responding to the gospel is that they're turning a deaf ear to the universal call that goes out, come, come to the waters, come, buy um, food and, and uh, water and, uh, and come and drink and come and eat. That's the, the call of the gospel. And in the other sense, no, it cannot be resisted because it's sovereign and it's powerful. We're talking about two different uh, wills, two different calls, so to speak. Um, so this whole question about the, the irresistible grace, when we are talking about, what we are talking about is a way of describing God's grace, God's gift. That's what grace is. It's a gift. God's gift to us through his spirit that guarantees that you and I will be saved. It literally makes us a new creation. And in this sense, God's Irresistible grace is invincible. It's powerful. And it cannot be resisted in that sense. So um, it's invincible or infinite, like we sang about. Infinite grace or invincible grace is maybe a better eye uh, to use in the tulip acrostic uh, that we'll, we'll talk about here in just a second. But anyway, we've got irresistible grace. Uh, irresistible grace kind of makes us think of a gift that we don't really like, but that we're forced to accept like Ralphie in the Christmas story, coming downstairs in the bunny pajamas, you know, he's just not too excited about it, but his mom makes him keep it. Is that what irresistible grace is? It's not. 
All right, let's, um, let's stand in honor of God's word. I want to open the Bible to John chapter 10. We're going to read verses 22 through 30. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Let me pray for us. Father, would you please bless the reading and hearing and receiving of your word? Would you uh, reassure us of our calling in the Holy Spirit? Would you remind us of the new creation that we are uh, through his work in us? Would you um, disrupt any possibly who are presuming upon uh, their status, but indeed need to heed the call, even for the first time. Lord, would you get glory among your people this morning? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, please be seated. Uh, Jesus and the, the, the leaders of the uh, Jewish party, the Jewish community, are sparring once again. It's, it's a familiar scene uh, to those of you, if you've you know, been around the Bible a little bit. Uh, if you're new uh, to the church, if you're new to the Bible, um, what, uh, what we're dealing with is a familiar antagonism between the established religion and what is viewed as sort of this upstart religion that Jesus is promoting. Uh, Jesus concludes these remarks in verse 30. He says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. It's another hint that, yes, I am the, the, the Christ, the Messiah who's coming, the one sent by God. I and the Father are one. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have a coordinated, eternal plan to save sinners and bring us sinners back into relationship with a holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So um, as we have reviewed over the past few weeks and as we continue the study of how sovereign grace works in our lives, God chooses us, predestines us. Um, there's a slide here. Uh, Dan, I don't know if this is a, if you can pull it up. Uh, but we've been using this acrostic uh, called TULIP, and it's a way of, um, of, of explaining the points in this, again, 400-year-old discussion about how does God work to save us. Well, the Bible says that we are thoroughly or totally uh, depraved, that there's, there's sin throughout, um, that we actually have a sinful nature and that means that we are fundamentally God's enemies. We've turned our back on him. But God still loves his enemies. And in love, Ephesians 1 tells us, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons. And that there's this unconditional election. Drew uh, was not doing anything to earn Kyle and Jenny's attention, saying, oh, oh, pick me, pick me. You know, he's passive in this. And uh, Kyle and Jenny kind of swooped in sovereignly, scooped him up marched him out of the hospital, you're, you're ours, you know. And that's this picture of how in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons. And he sent his 
eternally begotten Son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice to take away our sin, pay the penalty in our place on the cross, and then give us, grant us as a gift, his right status as a law keeper. And that's this picture of limited atonement. He did it all for those who are his children. And that's the limits that he places on that atonement. Uh, We're talking about the grace of the Holy Spirit making us new creations so that we can hear the voice of the shepherd. We who did not previously have ears to hear or eyes to see can now hear and respond to the shepherd's call because we've been new, we've been born again. And as we'll see next week, God's love never fails. And it perseveres and it continues and he will keep us to the end. We will not be lost, even as Jesus is alluding to here, uh, that no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. And there's a mystery involved here, right? Uh, We're talking about more than just one tulip. What's better than one tulip? But many tulips. There's an S uh, that we're sticking on to the end because I don't think it's healthy to have this conversation about God's sovereignty without acknowledging that there is validity and there's plenty of scriptural support for the integrity of our accountability. Uh, that you and I are responsible human agents, that God, yes, is a sovereign king controlling the universe. And he's a good and fair judge. And you and I have to stand before that judge one day and give an account. He made us in his image. He's sovereign. There's a sense in which you and I are exercising our will, our choices. We should be reflecting his choices, what gets us into trouble is we don't. So that's this picture of what we're, uh, the, the, the broader discussion. Um, let's look again at our text at what amounts to basically a very insincere question. Uh, in Admiral Akbar's language, it's a trap. Um, so you've got, okay, I'm just going to stop. I'm done. Uh, no. Uh, you've got this, this uh, party of leaders, and they're approaching Jesus. They're gathering around him. Look at verse 24. It's like they're surrounding him. They're going to trap him. And they uh, say to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Um, they're in the, uh, you know, this, it's, it's during actually what we know as Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication. It's December. It's winter. It's rainy out. It's, it's a little bit chilly. And so they're inside in the, the, the Solomon's colonnade. And uh, this is a, it's a symbolic, unique setting for this discussion in the temple because this is now Herod's temple. Solomon's temple was destroyed. Solomon's colonnade is the only remaining portion of the old temple. And, uh, and now uh, there's a new temple, Herod's temple. And so Jesus is standing and, and they're having this discussion in a, sort of in a... Um, in a metaphorical bridge between the old and the new. And Jesus is saying, you should know the answer to this question already. You should know because you see in me, you have heard from me, you have seen the evidence of how I have fulfilled the law and the prophets, the old, have found their fulfillment. The, the promises of the kingdom are being demonstrated in his actions, and that's essentially what Jesus says in verse 25, I did tell you, I did tell you, but you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. They don't believe because they don't want to believe. What they want to do is trap him. They're looking for evidence to arrest him. They're trying to bait 
Jesus and is saying something uh, controversial that's going to get him into trouble for blasphemy. Uh, Already two chapters earlier in John chapter 8, you hear about the plot, the design of the Jewish leaders to kill Jesus. This is not a friendly conversation. Uh, This this is manipulation. Uh, So Jesus isn't going to play into their trap. And he answers their sort of uh, enigmatic question with an enigmatic answer. You, You do know. Uh, I did answer the question, but, the, but you're refusing to believe. Look at the works that I do. They bear witness about me. So no, he doesn't explicitly say, uh, yeah, I'm the Messiah, I'm the guy, and now you can arrest me and you know, kill me for blasphemy. No, instead what he does is he says, I'm going to leave it up to you. I've told you plainly, I've showed you plainly, it's up to you to decide, what about my works? What about, you know, five chapters earlier in John where Jesus heals a man who was without hope, without any kind of recourse. Jesus heals him. He'd been um, paralyzed for 38 years. Jesus makes him walk and leap. And it's this picture of the promises of the kingdom of God coming to bear. Uh, In John chapter 6, he feeds 5,000 plus people and he points to the fact that he is the true bread from heaven. Moses gave your father's bread in the wilderness, and here I am giving you my flesh uh, and blood. And then he heals a man born blind in John chapter 9. I'm the light of the world. And if there's any picture or image that the Jewish community would understand to be symbolic of the kingdom and the Christ is light. He would be a light to the Gentiles, uh, the light of the tabernacle, the light of the menorah, the light of the glory cloud. All of this is a picture of God's presence among them. They know the answer. They're trying to just trap Jesus. What he says um, in, uh, earlier in chapter 10 um, is in verse 14, he says, I'm the good shepherd. And I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And then John describes a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Can you imagine coming to that conclusion, listening to Jesus firsthand? And on the other hand, others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? You know, Look at verse 26, the passage we've got open. Jesus tells these people who are trying to manipulate him and trap him, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. The problem is in you, not in me. Uh, the problem is in your identity, uh, your opposition to your, and resisting uh, the, the call, this, this call that goes out to everyone to come to Jesus. They're resisting that call. And the reason why they're resisting that call is because in them is a nature that is completely antithetical uh, to the things of God. They don't have eyes to see. They don't have ears to hear. Uh, Sheep, on the other hand, do have eyes to see the shepherd and ears to hear and and heed their shepherd. Um, This this is about our nature. So one way to think about this is uh, you think about a a dog that can only see in black and white. Uh, That dog is not capable of seeing color. And so if you want that dog to obey a command based on color, uh, that's a futile training exercise. Um, but a dog can see in black and white. It would take a miracle, you know, um, for that dog to see in color. It would take a, a transformation of the nature of that 
of canineishness uh, for, for such a thing to happen. That's what happens to us. Our sinful nature can only, so to speak, see in black and white. The gospel is calling us to see in color. What's got to happen to us is our nature has to be changed. Listen to this conversation that I know is familiar uh, to many of you, but if you're new, again, this is between Jesus and another Jewish leader. And Jesus is explaining how the Holy Spirit works, the power of the Holy Spirit over us. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. And he came to Jesus by night. He's got these questions for Jesus, wants to know who he is. And Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, you can also translate that expression, born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot see the kingdom of God unless he's born from above. And he says again, sort of the same thing, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter uh, the kingdom of God. Something has to happen to a person from above, from the spirit, in order for them to see, to even perceive the existence and the realities of the kingdom of God, much less to enter it. And so when Jesus is telling Nicodemus, and I'm not, I know these words are familiar, but I'm not sure if it's really dawned on us or if we've connected the dots, Jesus is saying that we are not born again because we believe. He's saying we believe because we're born again. Does that make sense? Can you see that? Can you hear that? I mean, it's, that's the primacy of the Holy Spirit. That's the power of the Holy Spirit it has to be at work in us in order for us to have eyes to see and ears to hear. Otherwise, how are we going to hear the shepherd's voice? How are we going to see where he's leading us unless we are given that capacity from, from the Holy Spirit? And that's why we talk about this irresistible, this powerful, this, this um, uh, invincible calling where the Holy Spirit moves into the hearts of those who were previously resisting in a, in a general sense all things of God. But they can't resist in a particular sense God making them alive through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's, what, that's this distinction uh, that the Bible sets before us. We can't forget the fact that left to ourselves, nobody's going to seek God. Nobody's going to do this on our own. Um, that the testimony of Scripture over and over, as Romans 3 says, that no one is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's strong medicine. That's tough. That's hard for us um, because we like to, uh, we want to believe that there's, there's this remnant of, uh, of, of integrity and goodness and nobility and dignity uh, in us. And there's a sense in which, yes, as people, men and women and children created in the image of God, we do retain some of that, but thoroughly and completely throughout anything that still gives a hint of the image of God in us is rebellion and treason and betrayal and, you know, so... I've just never done anything out of 100% good motive in my life, neither of you. But nonetheless, we want to think that um, the gospel works like a potluck. Uh, we want to think that uh, I bring something to the table, Jesus brings something to the table, and cooperatively we work this out. Like, you know, you bring a nice casserole to the church potluck, somebody brings pie, and together, you know, we all make it happen. We bring that potluck thinking into, the, into faith, and we think that Jesus brings his cross, and I bring my faith in him, and together, you know, we make it work. But if you ever stop and think about what exactly you and I are bringing to the table uh, of salvation, well, work that out. 
Think about it. In my nature, what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose self. Uh, that's what my simple nature is going to do. I'm not seeking God. And so what I'm bringing to the table is actually my sin. That's what I'm bringing to the equation. And so the gospel says that Jesus is going to take the sin that I bring and trade that. He'll take my sin and he's going to give me his rightness. He's going to give me his righteousness as a gift. That's the exchange. I mean, if you're going to use potluck terms, Jesus brings everything to the dinner. I bring, well, I bring my casserole of sin. (laughs) A big steaming, you know, mess of pollution and rot and nastiness. That's what I'm setting on the table. And Jesus says, thank you. Let's let's just get this out of the way now. (laughs) And let's feast. Let's feast on what he provides. That's the exchange, biblically speaking, um, so when we're thinking about, oh, all right, so the Holy Spirit, yes, I have to be born again, but there's still something in us that makes us think that we're calling the shots. The Bible's giving us a different picture. Romans 8 says that those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So those whom he has called, he's also justified. Those who are called are the ones who receive these blessings. 1 Corinthians 1, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to the Gentiles, meaning the Jewish community were stumbling over Jesus. They couldn't, they couldn't get past you know, just his ordinariness. And then the, the, the rest of the world, the rest of the nations are thinking, well, this is just foolishness. How can you say that the king of the universe is nailed to a cross? And so left to ourselves, those are the conclusions that we will come to. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Jewish and non-Jewish, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, that Jesus overcomes our resistance through his spirit. And I know this sort of raises up these questions, well, I want to be in charge and I want to feel autonomous and I want to feel like I'm contributing to this. We're, we're like, um, do you remember the beginning of the Incredibles? Like the very beginning, the newsreels. Uh, and there's, uh, the backstory is that Mr. Incredible and Mrs. Incredible, um, or Elastigirl before she got married uh, to Mr. Incredible, they are out fighting crime. But things are sort of going sideways with the general public. And the man who wants to commit suicide and jump out of the building, Mr. Incredible rescues him. And he sues the government because Mr. Incredible didn't let him carry out his plan to you know, destroy himself. Or the people on the train you know, who... Uh, experience some injuries because Mr. Incredible saves them from derailing and the whole train, you know, going up in flames and all of them uh, losing their lives. Instead, they're suing the government because of injuries incurred while their lives were being saved. You know, it gets sideways. And that's just this whole picture of how we really don't like to feel powerless. We really, really want to believe that we're in charge. Why would we be upset Why would we chafe at the idea of God lovingly swooping in and adopting us? Picking us up and selecting us and choosing us and loving us. That's this picture of sovereign grace. Irresistible grace. This new nature that we receive because of the Holy Spirit's work. Otherwise, how in the world will anyone believe? If it's really true that our nature is contrary to the things of God, that if the gospel left to ourselves, we'll either stumble over Jesus or we'll think it's foolishness. 
If that's what's in us, then how will anyone be saved apart from the work of the Holy Spirit? Um, two professors from Covenant Seminary wrote a book, uh, and they say this, sinners are hostile to God, and when God touches their lives with his sovereign grace, he frees them from sin's bondage. And as a result, they willingly trust Christ. God doesn't force sinners to believe against their will. We don't wear the pink bunny suit. Instead, he liberates them by his spirit. He doesn't violate their personalities. He sets them free to be the people that he intended. So put it this way, when you get a new nature because the Holy Spirit makes you born again, you know, you respond to the call of Jesus. You have eyes to see his goodness. You have ears to hear his call. If God gave you wings, would you want to fly? Would anybody have to make you fly? If God gave you fins, would you, you know, would you swim or would somebody have to like push you in? If God gave you great hair, would you, would you rock it? You, know? um, you, just, you would just do it because you want to. You have it, and it's your ability now. Um, God gives us his spirit, and we respond to the call. Think of Lazarus. Lazarus, um, uh, the story is that he was sick. Jesus intentionally delayed his coming because he knew what he was doing, um, and he wanted to reveal his glory, um, and Lazarus died. And he's in the tomb, and Jesus finally arrives, and Lazarus has been dead for a number of days. And, and I want you to imagine you're Lazarus. And you're in the tomb, and, and, and you're dead. I know you're conscious, but you're thinking about your, your, how you're dead, and that doesn't make sense, but you just got to go with me. So you're dead, and it's been a number of days, and, and it's starting to smell, as Martha kindly pointed out, or Mary pointed out. Uh, and all of a sudden, you hear a voice from the other side of the, the sealed tomb Lazarus, come forth. Well, that's interesting. I can hear. (laughs) I've been dead for a number of days, and now I can hear. Lazarus, come forth. And you just decide, you know what? No, no, thanks. I'm fine. I'm good. I'd rather stay dead and enjoy this dark, smelly tomb. You know, that's ridiculous to, to think that you would use the new capacity that you have to be given life and then not respond to that life. It, doesn't, it didn't happen against Lazarus's will. He came forward of his own will. Mysteriously, that is combined with the sovereign call of Jesus. And that's what happened to you and to me. We are not born again because we believe. We believe because we're born again. Uh, this means that the glory goes to God for our salvation. It humbles us, and it lowers us, and it helps us see the greatness of our salvation. It removes the potluck thinking from our minds, and it helps us worship a God who sovereignly had mercy on me. So that I'm, not, I'm not patting myself on the back for my spiritual acumen. Boy, how smart am I, choosing Jesus. And I'm not you know, embracing in some smug hug with my other brothers and sisters, all of us whom were smarter than the idiots who didn't choose Jesus. Too bad for them. Instead, we worship. We bow down and we exalt the one who loved me, who chose me, who called me, who saved me. What did I do? I sinned. And God gave me the ability to repent. And now he's given me a new nature so that I can worship him and receive this gift of faith. And I give thanks to God. Isn't this how we pray? 
Don't you know this deep down to be true? Because this is exactly how you relate to your, your lost family members and neighbors and friends and coworkers. When you pray for them, you and I are praying for God to change their hearts. In Acts, we read about you know, um, everybody coming together and celebrating the work of the gospel, how when Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch and when the Gentiles heard about all that had happened through their ministry, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, God chose them. And then we read about Lydia in Acts 16. The Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That's how we pray. We exalt invincible grace that powerfully changes hearts and brings the lost home. We don't just pray. We go. We go because we're also acknowledging that as sovereign as God is to call and elect and choose and regenerate those who are going to be his sheep, he also calls us to go and bring this invitation universally to every single person under the sun. Are all of them going to believe? No. But you know what? Some of them will. Some of them will, not because you and I are so persuasive and so skilled as evangelists or missionaries. You know why they're going to believe? Because the Holy Spirit's invincibly going to conquer them. The Holy Spirit's going to have his way with them. You and I get the pleasure of being his instruments. So we go to our neighbors and to the nations, and we call them, we bid them be reconciled to God. We embrace the mystery of God's sovereign call over their lives and the human individual's responsibility to respond to that call. And we don't try to call the shots, and we're not kind of, you know, trying to be faster or trickier than we should. We're just kind of doing what God calls us to do and extend the invitation. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but through him to save the world. And that's this picture that we have of this supper. Jesus invites the whole world to come and to feast on him, to eat his flesh and drink his blood, to believe on him. It's not up to us who responds to that call. It's up to us to just simply issue the call. And we'll trust the Lord with who's going to respond. But let me ask you, are, have you received that call? And have, have you responded to the call to come and believe in Jesus? Have you, do you have ears to hear and eyes to see? What, what worries me sometimes is people who come to church and they've been in church all their lives and they feel like, I've checked the box, I'm, I'm following Jesus, but there's absolutely been no change in their lives, no evidence of the Holy Spirit really changing them and transforming them. We're talking about transforming grace. Grace that brings somebody who was dead spiritually and making them somebody who alive spiritually. So if you're here and you're wondering, all right, I'm hearing about this sovereign call, the Holy Spirit moving in and changing me. How do I know if I'm called? If you're wondering that question, I've got uh, a couple of things to think about. The first, first thing to think about is if you're anxious about that, if you're, if you're concerned, I, I don't know if I'm called. I don't know if I'm a sheep, and I want to be a sheep, but I don't know. And how can I be sure that I'm a sheep? Well, let me reassure you. 
Even that anxiety, that concern, is a sign of the Holy Spirit's work in you. Why in the world, why else would you be concerned? If you didn't have the Holy Spirit at work in you, you, the things of God would be, you know, like trivia to you. You wouldn't care. But if this is consuming you, if this is worrying you, if this is kind of keeping you up at night, that's, I think that's an indication of the Holy Spirit's work in your heart. And I want to reassure you. Really, when it comes down to the question, how do I know if I'm called? Don't get obsessed or wrapped around the wheel of God's eternal decrees. How do I know that he predestined me? How do I know, you know that I was chosen? Or sort of, you know the very simple answer to the question, how do I know if I'm called? Are you following Jesus or not? Have you heeded the call? That's how you know if you're called. And maybe a better way to even express that is don't ask yourself, am I following Jesus? Ask the people around you. They know if you're following Jesus. They know if you're living a life of discipleship. They know if you have made Jesus your bullseye. They know if you are seeking to grow in the grace of love and joy and peace and patience. They know if you are repenting of your sins. They know if you are brokenhearted over the things that you've done wrong. They know if you have been forgiven and have the power to thus forgive. They know. And they know if you're not. And you might get the greatest gift in the world. It's for somebody who loves you to gently tell you, I'm concerned. I'm concerned you might just be playing a game. Or you might get the gift of, you know what, be at peace. I see the evidence of Jesus all over you. You don't have to spin. You don't have to worry. You don't have to, to be upset. I see Jesus in you. I see the evidence of the new birth in you and receive from your brother, from your sister, the ministry of the Holy Spirit to confirm God's call in your life. Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful. Thankful that my sheep hear, uh, your sheep hear your voice, and that you know them, and that we will follow you, and you will give us eternal life, and we will never perish. And so we are grateful for the gift of the Holy Spirit powerfully and infinitely and invincibly works in our hearts. Otherwise, we would have no ears to hear. and We would have no eyes to see. So we exalt sovereign grace. We, we, we recognize the mystery of our, our agency involved in this, but we just bow before you and we thank you that we serve a God who has had us on his heart from eternity past, who has predestined us in love for adoption as his sons and daughters, who's given us the spirit to make us just as alive as Lazarus. Father, we pray for you to humble hearts that are proud and for you to lift up hearts that are broken and bowed down, that you would get glory and that you would get worship in this place, Lord, that you would continue to transform us uh, again through the, the power of your spirit and the fruit of the spirit in us so that people would see the evidence of your work and they would see love and joy and peace in us. Lord, grow these graces in us, grow our repentance, grow our humility, grow our Christ-likeness. And Lord, we pray for the whole church, and in particular, we ask for you to comfort those who are, are troubled.